How significant are space programs in the Middle East? Is there enough investment, research, and development to make the region an international powerhouse in the world beyond our world? And how likely is it, really, that humanity will one day have a home on Mars? This is the Big Ideas edition of the Recorded Podcast. I'm Suleiman Hakimi, opinion editor at the National Newspaper. Over the course of 2023, I've had the chance to sit down here in Abu Dhabi with three international thought leaders representing the fields of media and business strategy, public opinion, and space science. In this episode, I speak to space science expert Professor John Zarnecki, who talked about his observations of the UAE's space program, the country's Mars mission, and its impact on the next generation. Professor Zarnecki and I also talked about the involvement of the private sector in space exploration and the challenges of large-scale space missions. He gives his opinion on whether we, the human race, are alone in the universe, or if there are indeed other life forms elsewhere. Before we start, please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and check out all the other episodes of this series. How involved have you been in, or how much have you followed the UAE's space program in the past couple of years? I have indeed followed the, the program. I am now mostly retired, though you could argue that once a space scientist, always a space scientist. But I'm mostly retired now, so I follow from a distance now. And I've been especially interested in the Mars mission, for example. I think it's tremendous that the UAE is doing not just the practical stuff, looking at the Earth, obvious reasons for matters of natural resources, for climate monitoring, uh, maritime security, those sort of things, which are very practical down-to-earth things. But it's good to see the more the purer science, such as you do in orbiting Mars. And I think that's also, it's not just important for me as a scientist, but I think for inspiring the next generation, it's harder to get them excited about the kind of practical stuff. But when they see, particularly when they see their own country being involved, it's not just a matter of NASA or China going to these exotic places, but when they can see that their own country is involved, I think I've seen with lots of youngsters how it can act as a spark. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Yeah, there's this idea that's often put out there as a counterpoint to investment in space exploration that, you know, why are we so concerned with going to Mars, with sending probes to other planets, uh, with spending, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe even billions on this kind of stuff when we have so many problems here on Earth. And I think the Middle East is one of those places where, you know, when you talk about problems here on Earth, <laughs> there are quite a few of them in this region. So, in light of that, do you think it's still worth it for the Middle East to be looking beyond the stars? Yeah, I, absolutely, I do. Clearly, I'm kind of biased, I suppose, in, in that question. But there, there are all sorts of reasons. I don't think there's any one simple answer to this. If you look at it from a purely utilitarian point of view, perhaps it's not so easy to justify. But there are all sorts of reasons. One thing I would say is that, for example, you talk about costing a lot of money. Well, when you talk of tens, hundreds of millions, of course, it seems like a lot. But in the grand scheme of things, when you look at what countries spend on social security, on medical, on, on defense and so on, actually, these are not such vast amounts that we're talking about. 
And what you have to remember is where is the money spent? The money's not spent on the moon or on Mars. The money is spent here on Earth, and it's mostly spent on people. And these are generally very high-tech jobs, so you are producing a cohort of very skilled, trained people, many of whom will go on to jobs in other sectors. And the skills and the disciplines that you learn in doing space projects, they're, they're absolutely invaluable. Space is one of the most demanding environments in which your technology has to work. Yeah. So if you can, you know, be successful there, the likelihood is that you will be in projects here on the Earth. Yeah, when the UAE started its Mars mission, I remember one of the more headline-grabbing quotes to come out of that period was this idea that the UAE is going to try and get a human settlement on Mars within a century from now. Do you think that's possible, first of all, for anyone to do that? And do you think that do you think that's something that will, uh, I guess, what level of global cooperation will that require? Well, the simple answer to your question, you're giving us quite a long time frame, like within a century. The answer is yes, I would say for sure, we will have permanent stations on Mars. Who will do it? I'm almost certain that it will be a global collaboration. Obviously, there'll be some countries that have more of the, the know-how, have more economic power, who will perhaps be providing more of the input. But there's absolutely no reason why the UAE shouldn't be a big part of that. So I, I'm certain that there will be kids who are not yet born. Let's say there are probably children who are now maybe at primary school here in the UAE who will be walking on the surface of Mars in 30 or 40 years' time. I think the first time a lot of people in the past um, decade had seriously considered the idea of human settlements on Mars was when uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX said that they were going to spearhead that effort. Uh, do you think that colonization of other planets is something that is going to be driven mostly by the private sector, or will that still be for national space agencies to lead? I've, I've enormous regard for what Elon Musk has achieved from a technical and engineering perspective. But what you have to appreciate is that what he has done has been on the back of, I'm not exactly sure of the number, but I think it's something like $18 billion of government contracts. So it's not quite, it's not pure private enterprise. It's driven absolutely by government contracts. Mm. So instead of NASA doing it themselves, they're essentially subcontracting to somebody who is very innovative in, in engineering applications. So I still feel that in some form or another, this will be government stroke, national stroke, international bodies who will be leading the drive. Now, I think they will be using the private sector for some of the innovative technology that will be needed. But I, I 
think we are a long way away from purely, totally, you know, private venture missions to, to Mars. That might come in one or two hundred years' time, but that's still a long way. But the outcome is very different, right? Because if you colonize Mars or if humanity colonized Mars, then what's essentially happening is creating a society on Mars, such as it is. And if that society is driven by private enterprise, even on a surface level, versus being driven by governments. I'll give you an example, right? A US-run colony on Mars looks very different from Saudi-run colony on Mars or a Chinese-run colony on Mars. And similarly, a private sector inspired colony would look very different. So I, while it might be a collaborative effort, where do you see the actual the governance or the societal framework coming from? You're asking a simple uh, physicist yeah. th uh, this question. This is really more a matter of, this is for social, social scientists, science, yeah. for legal people. It is an absolutely fascinating question. Is this something scientists talk about, physicists and astrophysicists? Do they talk about this? In passing, I can't say it's at the center of our conversations. We're still much more challenged by the technical issues. How are we going to survive the radiation for a three-year round-trip visit to Mars? That sort of thing. Surely there are, are there not some examples that we could perhaps draw something from? I'm not sure, but... I was thinking about the polar regions of the Earth. I, I guess those are still inhabited by countries working generally on their own, I suppose. So maybe that's not a good example. If you think of the colonization of the US by settlers, mm -hmm. that was pretty much private venture, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's, we use the expression yeah. in English, the Wild West. Maybe. Uh, that's what will happen on Mars. We'll have the, the equivalent of the Wild West on the surface of Mars. It's a slightly scary yeah. picture. I think there's got to be some regulation and some planning. I would, I'm the product of the 1960s, and we were hippies then. We had great ideas of how peace and love were, were, were going to rule the world forever. We were naive, but there's still a bit of that in me. And I like to think that starting with almost a blank canvas, which we will be on Mars, that some of the baggage that we have here on Earth, the enmities and, and so on, that we can leave some of that behind. I think we heard from the Director General in our discussion that in space, in, on, on the International Space Station, for example, the common enemy is, is space, is the environment. It's tough. So though there are Americans and Russians and so on who politically might be at each other's throats, they actually work together pretty much seamlessly. So I hope it's not naive to say that we can achieve that also on Mars. Do, do you think if we go to the more technical issues that you said a lot of scientists are more concerned about, the technical expertise to figure out how to get us to Mars or back into back onto the moon or even further away. It, would you say that technical expertise has become fairly widespread or is it still very concentrated to a few institutions or countries? Knowing how to do it 
is pretty widespread. The actual doing of it is the more challenging. Is that about money or? It's, you see, these are just enormous projects. So this sounds really boring, but the project management, how to bring together all of the technologies, all of the industries, um, to get them all working together, it's a gigantic task. So it's not something magic necessarily. There will be some technologies, a few technologies that are perhaps rather specialized, which not every country will have. But it's the experience of managing and bringing it all together. And you need an incredible degree of reliability and to make it happen. And that's probably the most challenging part. Not every country or groups of countries would have that sort of know-how. It's all very well having the designs on paper. We, that, that probably fairly widely exists. But actually going from the, the theory, the idea, to the practical implementation, the nuts and bolts, the metal, the electronics, everything in the right place at the right time, all having been thoroughly tested, all working together, that's it. Real challenge. Yeah, because I've seen this, you see, hmm. on a smaller scale with the unmanned missions. Sending a spacecraft to Saturn mm-hmm. or to Halley's Comet, that is challenging. The organizationally and getting all the contractors to turn up on uh, at, at, at the right time with what they promised to deliver. That's, and you know, you magnify that when you bring astronauts into the loop, you know, with all the requirements to feed them, to keep them not too warm, not too cold, mm-hmm. with an atmosphere to breathe and all of that. I mean, it's a lot of systems that have all got to come together. Yeah, because it makes sense to me that the UAE would have a space program that is advanced as it is and that would be the first Arab nation to go. Like, they build skyscrapers in the UAE very quickly. They build islands. They, you know, they can, they're very organized. Yeah. Like the companies here are very organized and the government is very organized, as you said, from a project management perspective. But I have been a bit more surprised that other countries in the region haven't been able to marshal these guys. For example, in Iran, everyone knows they have a very advanced nuclear program. They have plenty of physicists, right? Other countries in the region, it's the same thing. The the level of science is actually quite high in a lot of ways. Yeah, science, technology, and and know-how, it's there. But but this, the coming to fruition of big scientific projects is not there. And would you say that's because of this I don't know, this lack of project management expertise, or is there something else? It's hard for me to, to, to comment, but you see, you need, I think there's incremental experience that you build on, and you talk about building projects. That's to do some of these complex building projects, that, that's no simple task at all. So it's that sort of know-how, but it's just multiplied up many times to to do something in in a much more challenging environment and as i said in my talk in space you generally can't go up there with your screwdriver with your soldering iron to make repairs whereas you can on the ground so it's a whole different level of reliability that you need and that just doesn't come overnight that's something that you, that you have to build up over time 
Yeah. Do you think that in in Europe, as things like economic recessions and geopolitical issues and all of that start to take their toll on not just the wider economy, but academic institutions and things like that. Do you think there's a risk that, um, well, I'd say a risk from the European perspective, but actually an opportunity from the rest of the world's perspective. Do you think there might be a shift in space exploration and space science from Europe to the emerging markets or the developing world? You're asking me to come up with a crystal ball here. I think there are, for the developing world, there are real opportunities. Personally, I would see nothing wrong with trying to tempt some of the expertise, either the old experienced people or the bright young things. I, I, I have always seen in the research environment an enormous benefit from having a mix of people from different backgrounds, different nationalities and ideas. And so, yeah, I think there are opportunities. I'd like to think from a European perspective, yes, there's always a threat. There's been at various times a brain drain to the United States, to from my country, United Kingdom, we lose medical people to Australia and New Zealand. The sun shines a bit more often there than it does in Northern England, for example. So, yeah, there are challenges for Europe and opportunities for this region. I think it can work beneficially to both ways. You know, if you have, for example, some scientists from my country who come and work here, work with other researchers here, they will be familiar, for example, with industry and technology in UK and the Europe. And so that can be a benefit to us. I see opportunities both ways. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you is about the... So in your experience as a scientist, but also as a professor who's looked at how we can get as far as possible in space and where we can go, what do you think, if you were talking to a young child today who wants to get into space as a career... What's the big idea that's going to shape what they will be able to do 20 or 30 years from now in space science? Okay, there are a lot of challenges. Let's think of some of the big ideas, the big questions. I I would argue that probably the biggest question, maybe in all of science, is very simple, and that is, are we alone? In other words, is there life elsewhere in the universe? It's a very simple question, isn't it? And there are only two answers, yes or no. And if you think about it, whichever is the correct answer, that answer is totally mind-boggling. One is that we are totally alone in the universe. That's pretty overwhelming when you try to conceive of the size of the universe, or conversely, And I think the the consensus view is that if we're not alone, if life exists elsewhere, it it will be everywhere. In other words, the universe is teeming with life. So that is also mind-boggling. So if you can, if if a child at school now becomes a researcher in 20 or so years, if they can answer that question, that they will get a Nobel Prize. But do you think that's where research will be in 20 years, focused on that question? That's just one of many questions. 
from my perspective, another big question in the pure science area is, well, I don't know if you're aware, but there is this concept of dark matter and dark energy. When you essentially add up all of the regular matter in the universe, there's a dilemma. There is just not enough by an enormous amount to, to, for it to hold together gravitationally as it does. So we work out that the regular matter, baryonic matter, makes up probably about 5% of the total mass. So there is this vast amount, maybe 90% or more, of missing matter. Where is it? What is it? So that's another burning question. So those are the two really big questions. And this is without all of the practical science concerning understanding and controlling climate change and the, the medical science advances, which, of course, are, are staggering. And I expect that the next few decades will see just even further unbelievable developments in medical science. That's it for this episode. Please remember to listen to the other episodes of the Big Ideas edition of the recorded podcast. This episode was produced by Dawfarid, Arthur Edison, and Phil Green. And I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi.